In November 2022, the World Health Organization renamed monkeypox to Mpox. This was in order to fight stigmatization surrounding the name. Combating shame and stigma surrounding Mpox is one of the primary goals of this series. As this was recorded prior to this change, this episode will feature references to the original name. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Monkeypox. That's what we're here to talk about. Because, well, I have quite a lot of questions. As I told you in episode one, in early July 2022, I had monkeypox. And it was a pretty scary time. I remember sitting there in a doctor's surgery, asking so many questions. Like, what treatment was available? How long was this part going to last? And even after I recovered, why wasn't I automatically eligible for the vaccine? Am I immune? I had so many questions, but was really struggling to find the answers. I had monkeypox pretty early into this current outbreak. And it felt like our medical services were having to race to catch up. Little did I know, there were some pretty amazing people working tirelessly behind the scenes, attempting to discover themselves what the pox was going on. What the pox? Yeah, I think it's growing on me. It is temporary. Above all else, that is what I remember that got me through it. We need to make sure that gay and bisexual men have access to the vaccine. What I'm seeing a lot in the media are quite stigmatizing messages. If people were always, you know, doing exactly the right thing, then there'd be no STIs ever in the world. It does beg the question, if this was affecting heterosexual white people, maybe wouldn't be in this situation potentially. It is the job of a sexual health doctor, of an infectious disease doctor, to give people the ability to have the type of sex that they like with as low a risk as possible of infectious disease. Welcome back to What The Pox, a podcast talking all about monkeypox without shame or stigma. I'm Martin Joseph, and I recently recovered from monkeypox. In this series, I'm going to be bringing you all the information I wish I had at the time. Today, we're going to be looking at the science. Don't worry, we won't get too technical but you will understand what treatments are available, who is most affected, and what we have learned so far. Now, the first recorded human case of monkeypox occurred in 1970. It has been endemic in West and Central Africa ever since then. However, in May 2022, monkeypox cases started to present themselves in other parts of the world, which had many doctors and scientists 
scratching their heads. So my name's Professor Chloe Orkin. I'm a medical doctor and I work at Queen Mary University of London as an HIV physician and HIV specialist. Dr. Chloe also works for Bart's Health NHS Trust and her main research is around HIV, drug development and health equity. And when this current outbreak of monkeypox arose, she thought to herself, what can I do to help? So I decided that because I've worked with other researchers for so many years doing drug trials and HIV and trying to develop drugs, I would reach out to my networks of colleagues all over the world. So I looked at the map and where the cases were and thought about who I knew and sent some emails. And then somebody would say, oh, I, I don't have a case, but um, I know somebody my, in another hospital who does. And I went from person to person sending hundreds of emails until eventually I found people who had people with monkeypox. And then the people I phoned originally had people with monkeypox and it got bigger and bigger until we ended up with 16 countries and 43 sites and 528 people with monkeypox. Now, when it comes to monkeypox, there's been a lot of discussion around whether it's sexually transmitted. I found so many conflicting stories. I just wanted to know. How is it passing between people? So I asked Dr. Chloe, what does the science tell us? The, the challenge was that it was clearly spreading very differently to what had been seen previously. And what we knew previously was from countries who had experienced monkeypox for many years. So monkeypox has been happening in, in certain countries uh, in association with infected animals since 1970. And they obviously have written up what monkeypox looks like and what the progression of the illness is and how it spreads and how many people it would spread to who have contact with a person with monkeypox. We could see that this wasn't what was happening. They began by building a spreadsheet, starting with the original features and symptoms that were known to be related to monkeypox, and then began to add new information such as sexual health history, HIV status, and whether people had sexually transmitted infections or not. They then documented people's progress, treatment, and any complications that arose. During the process, what, what happened is they said to us, actually, we're seeing things that are not on the spreadsheet. We're seeing presentations that are not on the spreadsheet. So we're seeing things like really severe oral you know, throat problems, people not being able to swallow, terrible sores in the mouth. We're seeing terrible sores in the anus with people not being able to go to the toilet, you know, agony, um, people being admitted to hospital for this reason, for pain control that can't be controlled, people needing surgical drainage from these lesions, people with such severe ulcers inside the penis that they, their whole penis is really swollen up, they're needing a catheter. They started describing things we weren't seeing. And they also said that lots of people who are on PrEP um, were getting monkeypox. So we added these things to our, our, what we were collecting. We sent a new one and we said, everyone, please collect this as well. This was very unusual. Monkeypox had never been seen on this scale outside of the African continent. Because we were listening to the voices of clinicians on the ground and not just saying these are the symptoms of monkeypox, we actually managed to change what we were collecting in response to what was actually happening which resulted in the fact that we presented a paper which said that there are features that are not consistent with the case definitions of the international organizations. Because the World Health Organization, the European Center for Disease Control, the Center for Disease Control in America, 
UK Health and Security Agency all had definitions, but what we found was not part of these definitions. So what we called for in the paper was that the, these definitions would be changed. The problem is that people aren't, what we saw in our paper is that people weren't just going to sexual health clinics. They're going to emergency departments. They're going to see primary care physicians. They're going to lots of different places, to dermatologists, to colorectal surgeons. And we need a definition that has everything in it. So no matter who you are, and how clued up you are, you can recognize something from the definition. With all this new information, Dr. Chloe and her colleagues around the world were able to form a much clearer picture of what this latest outbreak looked like and how it was presenting. This would be incredibly useful when it came to identifying and then addressing the outbreak. Because how monkeypox was thought to present was not what was being seen which was creating a lot of confusion. For me, all the information I could find was talking about lesions and the images I was seeing didn't look much like what I was experiencing. I was in a lot of pain and I wasn't the only one. I spoke to Trevo, who is based in New York. Like me and many others, he was experiencing a lot of discomfort without any explanation. It went from extremely itchy in some places to like really bad pain um to the moment where i can't really sleep at night like from the friday night to monday morning like i would wake up maybe like three four times a night because the pain was so bad i would have to like go sit in the bath for a minute before i could go back to sleep um so it was like terrifying and scary and, and it was just, I felt like my body was deteriorating, you know, um, it was just, it, 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 like, I didn't have the answer yet. Um, so it was like, a just really scary moment. I can relate to that fear. Not having any answers just made the whole thing worse and ultimately more terrifying. But with people like Dr. Chloe Orkin, working away behind the scenes, the picture of who was being affected, how this was spreading, and how this outbreak of monkeypox was presenting was starting to become a little bit clearer. 76 to 99% of cases of people with monkeypox infection basically are related to sexual contact. Now, people have got quite hit up on the issue of whether monkeypox is a sexually transmitted infection or not. So the, you can get monkeypox without having sex. So therefore, in that sense, it's not traditionally described as a sexually transmitted infection. But almost all of the cases have been associated with sexual closeness. And this is because the, the, the best way of transmission for, for monkeypox is skin to skin contact with infected lesions. So skin on skin contact is the, the, the skin lesions are the most infectious. And if you measure the viral load, the amount of virus in skin lesions versus if you measure the amount of virus in respiratory secretions, it's very different. It's from very much lower in respiratory secretions than it is in skin. It has also been found in semen. So we were able to show in our series that um, there were five centers who tested semen and in a total of 32 people whose semen was tested, we found it in 29 people. So it was found in very high proportions of the semen that was tested. But that's a different question to whether it's infectious in semen. The fact that it's present doesn't mean that it can be infectious, okay? Because the virus has to be able to infect another cell. You can have virus, but it can be not replication competent, not able to transmit. 
But if you ask me what I think, I think it is probably sexually transmitted by semen. I think that I feel that quite strongly. That's because it looks as though the site of the first inoculum appears to be the site of contact, the first sexual contact. Which basically means the site in which the semen or virus is connecting with the body seems to be where it is impacting first and most severely. Which would explain why people who are getting monkeypox through sex are experiencing symptoms in their anus or their penis or in their throat. Regardless of whether it's sexually transmitted via semen or whether it isn't, it's during sex, the act of sex with all the skin contact that that involves is how it's transmitting. It does exist in skin lesions and there are cases, there have always been cases reported in household contacts. But it normally it's a chain of two or three people or one or two people in the household who may have acquired it through large droplets through sneezing and coughing, or it may have been related to touching the skin lesions, touching the bedding or the towels or the clothes of the person with monkeypox, because we know that the virus can live on surfaces for up to 15 days, probably longer, depending on the type of surface. But once again, the question is, how much of an infective dose do you need? How much virus? And, you know, if you know, if someone is very sick and covered in lesions in the bed and you change the sheets and the virus is everywhere, you know, you are at a risk of, of getting it. So we know that this virus can be transmitted sexually. And we believe that semen is a likely transmitting factor. And although we don't know how easily it spreads on surfaces and bedding, we know that this can play a part. But what about in the air? Dr. Chloe told me about a specific study that took place in a negative pressure room. Basically, it's an isolation room where the air is sucked inside and cannot leave the room. They, what they did is they got somebody in full PPE to change the sheets of someone who was in, had, had monkeypox, of a lot of monkeypox lesions. And within that room, what they found is that there was evidence of monkeypox on many different surfaces, on the vent, um, it was in, in a lot of, on lots of many, many different surfaces on their clothes and, and it went from inside to the little area outside. And so this was a case of aerosolization, but it was in a very specific situation where the sheets were changed in a, in a place where there was no incoming air. It was literally, the air was being sucked into this room. Um, so it was a very specific situation. And that paper has not been peer reviewed. This means that the study has not been reviewed by scientists or clinicians outside of those that did the study. Now, this is quite common and happened a lot during the height of the COVID pandemic, where scientists essentially wanted to get the findings out as soon as possible. So while this study shows that, yes, they did find the virus, and those that have presented this are very well respected in the scientific community, the findings have yet to be officially endorsed or investigated by those outside of that study. And I'm asked a lot about what happens if I'm on the dance floor, what happens if I'm in an aeroplane and someone's got monkeypox just before me, am I going to get monkeypox? Is it going to spread outside of the gay and bisexual men who have sex with men who are sexually active community? Is it going to spread outside of that? What if it affects women and children? There's all of this stuff, some of which is very homophobic. It's like, fine if it stays in the gay community, but if it spreads to everybody else, if it spills over, then that's really terrible. Um, and I'm not saying that it's not terrible, but I'm just saying it's terrible that it's affecting the gay community too. So I think the point is that the virus 
It's about the amount of virus, how high is the infecting dose, okay? And when you're having sex, there's a lot of skin contact for a sustained period of time, skin lesions rubbing. That's different from brushing against someone's T-shirt or, you know, it is, it is different. The point is that it's been a neglected infection and the doctors in Africa have been begging for help and sounding alarms and telling us for years that it's increasing. It's increasing. The numbers have gone up since 2020 in the Democratic Republic of Congo. They're having thousands of cases that a huge outbreak in Nigeria. Do we know anything about this disease? No. Why? Because it's a disease that affected black bodies in Africa and there was very little market for, for drugs because the drugs would not be drugs that, you know, people would be, the government would be able to afford them and there's very little interest in knowing about this disease so now we don't know there are things we don't know so you're asking me questions and i can give you some answers and there's some things i don't know and this is why we don't know i have been speaking to experts around the world about monkeypox and this keeps coming up we just don't know yet which is why neglect comes up hand in hand with this Research surrounding diseases found in developing nations is far behind what we experience here in, say, the UK or in the US. And it just keeps coming up time and time again. There's, there's a lot of attention on monkeypox at the moment now that it's affecting white men. That's Susan Cole from NAM AIDS Map. You know, we have to remember that monkeypox has been endemic in many African countries for, for, for decades. And the, um, the interest in that has been minimal. And the fact that we're, you know, we're, we're now seeing vaccines being rolled out to people in richer countries, but in countries where monkeypox has been endemic, there still isn't vaccines. I think that that's just an ex one example of the harrowing health inequalities that we're seeing globally. And I, I think very often, it's fueled by um, racism. Later in the series, we're going to unbox that issue in much more depth. But first, something a little closer to home. The vaccine, coming up after the break. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. A vaccine rollout is a conversation we are all too familiar with. After all, we're still living through the COVID pandemic. So what about monkeypox? Well, 
There are vaccines available, but they were originally developed to combat the spread of smallpox, not monkeypox. We have been told that these are 85 to 95% effective, but what does this percentage actually mean? The vaccines can be given either to someone who's been exposed, okay, and that's where the 85% comes from. If someone's been exposed, the rate of prevention is 85% of, you can prevent 85% of cases, 85% of people will be prevented from getting it. But you can also use it as a PrEP, pre-exposure prophylaxis. And when that is done, it's not 85%, it's 95%. So when you give two doses a month apart as a pre-exposure prophylaxis, two weeks after the second vaccine, whether or not you have HIV, you will have levels of about 95% antibodies if you measure antibodies. So this is a study measuring antibodies and they found 95% of people have antibodies two weeks after a second vaccine. So the 85% is about if you've been exposed and you're given a vaccine as post-exposure prophylaxis, it's 85% effective. There are severe vaccine shortages around the world. And for those people who are lucky enough to receive one, as we record this, most are only being offered one single dose. That's because they want to give them to as many people as possible. But this is done knowing that two doses of the vaccine provide better protection. So where does that leave people who are only receiving one dose? It's a good question. One of the other questions we don't know the answer to. Um, I think there's going to be a lot of trials on vaccines. Um, I think if we think about the principles, think about the COVID vaccine, what happened. So if we think about what happened with the um, AstraZeneca vaccine, the Oxford vaccine, there was a long wait, and or, or even all of our vaccines, we were, you know, we ended up having waiting three months and everyone laughed at us and they said it was disgusting and we're not getting the vaccine the way we were told by Pfizer and whatever. But actually giving a vaccine three, three months later, the immunity is often better because you get a, a longer wait and then you boost. So in immunology and vaccinology, Sometimes having an initial dose and then waiting longer, you get a better level of immunity. But it means that the gap, in the gap, your level of immunity is worse. So after a first vaccine, you can hope to have, if, you're, if you have HIV, around 30% potentially of people have antibodies after two, you know, two weeks after a vaccine, whereas about 60, 70% will have them without HIV. So there's a differential response in people with HIV and antibody response based on one study. So with one with one vaccine, potentially you might limit the severity of the disease, but it's not ideal. This vaccine shortage is not unique to the UK. It's why countries like the USA are trying different methods to spread out these doses. Here's virologist Dr. Joseph Osmondson. So the United States federal government has just advocated a policy Uh, It's called dose stretching, where instead of doing one dose with the whole vial, you can use a smaller amount, a fifth of the vaccine in what's called an intradermal shot. There's a huge amount of pushback from healthcare providers and from the community to be like, oh, the people who got the dose first, who had the access, get the full dose and everyone else gets like literally the spittle dregs in the end of the vials. Like it has not been super popular. Bavarian Nordic, the company that makes the vaccine, uh, publicly opposed it uh, for concerns over safety. So that's not great for the federal government. You know, I would say most of us who are both in the community and scientists or clinicians are not necessarily opposed. 
there is some science about it. It is important to note this vaccine has no clinical trial data for efficacy in humans. Not one dose, not two doses, not a fifth of a dose. All of the data on efficacy for this vaccine comes from animal studies and what's called immunobridging in humans. This is not to drive vaccine hesitancy. It's actually the opposite of that. The vaccine is amazing. It is the best tool everyone on the globe should have access. But what we learned with COVID is if you promise someone you get a shot and you're going to be 100% protected, and then you start to see breakthrough infections, that drives a lot of mistrust in in what scientists are telling you. What I think scientists should be saying is, look, this is a novel situation. This virus is spreading in new ways. We also don't know if the vaccine um, protection against skin-to-skin contact is going to be the same as um, when folks are having anal sex and the vaccine and the and the virus gets put directly on the mucous membrane in the rectum, right? That is we don't know whether or not that's been happening before. So is the vaccine going to be as effective in the uh, mucous membrane of the rectum or the throat? Mm. We want to pull people into this process of saying the vaccine is an incredible tool. It is definitely going to have um, a, a very good protective effect. We don't yet know what that protective effect is, and we're studying it. So here's what the knowns are. Here's what the unknowns are. And here's what we're doing to fill the gaps of knowledge. It may be important to continue risk reduction even post-vaccination. We don't know. Then the one-fifth of a dose thing, cutaneous, so the needle goes into um, the fatty layer under the skin, usually in the back of the arm or on some of us in our belly fat or on the hips or thighs, right? Anywhere you have this little layer of fat under the skin. Um, That layer of fat does not have a huge number of immune cells. The idea is right at the layer of your skin you have a huge number of immune cells because you know your skin is essentially where the inside of your body meets the outside. It's meeting pathogens all the time. You always have little sc- uh, scrapes and um, abrasions in the skin. So it's just chocked full of immune cells. The idea is because there's so many immune cells there, if you just poke the needle a little bit into the skin and put fluid in the just the tiny layer uh, of the skin, uh, there's a stronger immune response, so you need less vaccine. And this is called intradermal. Um, I'm putting the vaccine in the dermis. As I mentioned in the last episode, in the USA, antivirals are available. But they require finding a doctor that is willing to navigate some pretty complex bureaucratic hurdles and lengthy paperwork. Because of this, they're proving rather difficult to obtain. Just like my experience, people dealing with monkeypox in the States are being left to not only search for these antivirals themselves, but just like this show, people like Trevo are taking it upon themselves to help each other. The reason I, I, I had to share was because of the incompetent process of getting monkeypox healthcare in my city. Um, I was sent to, from my doctor who couldn't prescribe T-pox, sending me to a clinic that wanted me to go back to my doctor and an urgent care uh, place that said they can't prescribe it or uh, I'd have to like write it out and just like take some painkillers and go home and wait for it to be over. Um, it was just really, really frustrating. So that's when I, I tweeted, which to my surprise, that like, people just, just, just flooded with, with information and resources in such a big way. Today, I was on the phone with like 
uh, places in, in Atlanta because somebody DM me and said, I'm in Atlanta. I don't know how to get TFOS. Can you help? And I was calling some places to help them. So with monkeypox antivirals like TPOX being difficult to get hold of in the States, I wanted to ask Dr. Chloe Orkin, why was this something I was not offered as part of my treatment here in the UK? The important thing to say about TPOX is that it's firstly, it's got a different name. It's called Tecaviramat. And it's an antiviral drug that was approved for the treatment of smallpox disease. And it was approved under a rule called a regulation called the animal rule. And what this is, is it's a rule that allows approval of drugs for very, very serious conditions when it's not ethical to conduct trials in humans because you can't give people smallpox in order to study it. Okay. So under the animal rule, you can establish that a drug works on the basis of good studies, well-controlled studies in animal models of the disease, of the human disease. And then you have to, after you've done that, you need to assess the safety in people. So because smallpox is an eradicated disease, and obviously you can't ethically or feasibly infect people with smallpox to study them, the animal rule was the only way of approving this product for the treatment of smallpox. The animal studies using this virus that were done in um, primates, so in, in, in sort of monkey models, what they found was that sort of reduced deaths and it reduced poor outcomes was very effective, but they tested in healthy volunteers receiving the drug. And from that, they were able to develop, work out that the dose that was needed, the equivalent dose for the, for the monkeys in humans was safe for humans in terms of side effects. There's, there's no data on efficacy really in humans. Hearing this, I understand why I was not offered antivirals at the time. But what about the vaccine? As someone who has recently recovered from monkeypox, I have not been offered the vaccine. Does this mean I'm immune? No, we don't know. So we don't know if immunity is protective, but what the CDC are saying that we shouldn't prioritize people who've had monkeypox for the vaccine because you're likely to have more immunity than somebody who hasn't had it. So as well as not being offered the vaccine, I've also been told that I should not have sex without a condom for 12 weeks. I'm curious, why is this? Semen is not the only mechanism. There's also the skin contact. So, so condoms will protect you from semen and they'll protect you from any lesions that are inside the body that might be touching on the areas of skin covered by the condom, but they're not going to protect the parts of your body that are not covered by the condom. So I think condoms are a good idea because we know that it will survive in semen for, for periods of time, usually from other viruses that live in semen, like the Zika virus, you know, things can last a long time in semen once they're there. So I think this is cautious advice. Initially, it was eight weeks. Now it's 12 weeks. But just saying to people that just because someone wears a condom doesn't mean that you're protected because it's not only about the semen. It's And we don't know for sure it is transmissible in semen, although I'm pretty certain, I believe it is. Um, it's the skin contact that is the biggest issue. So the trouble is with HIV, I spend all my time and have publicly said, you know, on posters, on buses, um, U equals U, undetectable equals untransmissible. And I've said the risk is zero because it's zero. We've never shown that with people are undetectable, they can transmit HIV. And I've always said that language is unbelievably important because when it is zero, you should say zero and you shouldn't tell people there's a negligible risk when there's no risk. But now I would say equally, there is a negligible risk. It's not no risk because it, it, it can be on surfaces and we don't know enough to know how much virus you need 
to get monkeypox from a small amount of monkeypox. We don't know that. As with all new outbreaks, there's a lot we don't know. But the more I dig into this, the more it's clear that with amazing people like Dr. Chloe Orkin working tirelessly away to fill in the blanks, that picture will change. So I wanted to ask her, what do we know? So we've learned that of this whole outbreak, probably about 0.7% are uh, household contacts. That's what we understand. And we know that there are very, very few healthcare workers that have been infected, very small numbers. So we know that the reality is that it's spreading through dense sexual networks of highly mobile people. And the majority of people have, have had an average of five partners. And many people have visited sex on site venues. So we're talking about a population of, we're talking about a, a sexual network, a disease that's spreading through a sexual network. We know that it's presenting in the mucosa, it's presenting inside the mouth, inside the anus, inside the urethra. It's also in, also in the eye, you can get conjunctivitis. People have had big nasal lesions as well. We've learned that it's present in semen. We've learned that there's a huge appetite for vaccination and that the gay and bisexual uh, men who have sex with men uh, who are sexually active are very concerned around health and want to be protected. We've learned that it's very, that, it's, that we need, there's a very delicate balance in directing a public health intervention at a group who's at high risk without stigmatizing that group. And we've learned that it's dangerous to say things like anybody can get monkeypox, it's not a gay disease, because that's absolutely true. But one must also say anyone can get monkeypox, it's not a gay disease, it's not an African disease, but it is happening in the sexually active. And it's important to keep saying sexually active because it's not happening in the gay community. It's not happening happening in the gay male community. It's happening in the gay male community who are sexually active. And it's important that that is very clear. So we need to provide public health messages and interventions for the community who's at highest risk. We've learned that um, people are already expressing resentment and hatred that why are these vaccines being given to the people? It's all their own fault. Why don't they stop having sex? All of that stuff is happening again, like in HIV. We've learned that the same doctors who step forward to look after people with HIV have stepped forward again and feel as motivated and as horrified by the homophobia as they, they did the first time. And we've learned that it's important to hold the line and to say things like public health interventions. Good public health is about providing care for the people who are affected by the disease, not thinking about people you think are more worthy of the intervention. And that mor morality has no place in science. And we've also learned that the same levels of misinformation and conspiracy theory are affecting monkeypox. And there are people that think that monkeypox comes from the mRNA vaccines. And there are people thinks that monkeypox doesn't come from monkeys. We have also learned that naming diseases by countries where they come from is extremely stigmatizing. Calling it the West African clade, calling it the Congo Basin clade is stigmatizing. It needs to be given a number, which is a currently proposed reclassification. We've learned that showing images of black skins only was extremely offensive to black people and felt very stigmatizing. And it wasn't just the gay community who got stigmatized. Yeah, we've learned that, that this is one of many, many awful, neglected tropical diseases that are causing incredible unhappiness, morbidity, mortality in, country, in other countries. And 
that we think we're immune from them. We think we're separate. We think our white bodies and our safe, you know, rich countries are safe from these illnesses. And we're all one world and we're not safe. These are human diseases. They're not gay diseases. They're not African diseases. They're not Latin American diseases. They are diseases of humans. And they can be introduced into anyone. And tragically, they've been introduced into a very mobile, very densely active sexual network uh, of sexually active gay and bisexual men who have sex with men. And it's having a terrible effect on this community. So that's what I've learned from monkeypox. On the next episode of What the Pox, I'll be speaking with Will Nutland and Mark Thompson from Prepster and The Love Tank about the wider issues at play when it comes to monkeypox. So not only were we giving out vaccine, we were using it as an opportunity to address some health inequities around other areas of men's health and their sex lives. We need a root and branch restructuring of how public health is organised. We need a root and branch um, restructuring of how those services are funded. And, and without that, then we are going to see exactly the same situation happen when we see the next public health um, infectious disease outbreak. Thank you to today's voices, Tree Vo, Dr. Chloe Orkin, Susan Cole, and Dr. Joseph Osmondson. This episode was hosted and produced by me, Martin Joseph and executive produced by Jamie Wareham. What the Pox is a Queer AF production. You can find more information and resources on Monkeypox at wearequeeraf.com forward slash whatthepox. Here, you can also listen ad-free and find out how to support the show. Remember, one easy way to fight the algorithms that filter queer content like ours is to rate and review this show especially if you're listening on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Help us end the silence and tell us what you think about the show. Rate and review us now. Thanks. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.